Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 7, where we will spend our time uh, this morning. So let's begin by reading these verses together. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must hear. It is today and always has been common for men and women to approach God very casually, to underestimate him and to underestimate what it is that he requires of man, uh, to not think highly enough of God. If the Old Testament makes anything clear, it makes lots of things clear, but if there's one thing that really shines through as you read your Old Testament, it's surely that the Almighty is not to be approached in any old way that we would choose or that we might just think should be appropriate or right. God is holy, and man is not holy. He is God, and we are not. He is the one who sets the terms of worship. But today, if you were to look out at the sorts of things that a lot of churches do in their worship services, uh, you'd be forgiven for perhaps not realizing that the God that we are to worship is holy, that it's him who sets the rules. You wouldn't know that he's deadly serious, in fact, about how it is that he is worshipped. You wouldn't know that in the Old Testament, he roasted two men who offered strange incense to him. Uh, incense he did not require. They did their own thing, dead. In a lot of churches, you wouldn't realize that the God we to worship that the Bible speaks of slayed a man when he tried to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling off an ox cart to the ground. You wouldn't know that a husband and wife, this is in the New Testament now, not just that Old Testament, the New Testament even, that a husband and wife dropped dead at the feet of Peter after lying about their offering that they were bringing. Something that seems like a small offense to most. Of course, talking about Ananias and Sapphira. If you listen to the most famous Christian songs from the past 30 years, 
you come to the conclusion that God is lonely without you and that you just, he really, he's just so happy that you just worked it into your week to show up at church that whatever happens next is not really his primary concern. He's just so glad that you made it. The rest is just details to him. Many would not say these things, of course, but this is what is communicated by the flippant approach to God, by the introduction of novel ideas into worship. You know, even if we know better, we can still be lulled into a casualness with God, where worship becomes a routine. Of course, routine is not bad in and of itself, but we can be lulled into this point where worship becomes a routine uh, where we just kind of show up. And we haven't really given a whole lot of thought, really, to what it is we're doing. I haven't given a whole lot of thought to the high honor of gathering with the Bride of Christ to worship our triune God, who has called us out of the slavery of sin and into His kingdom. To worship together the God who is nothing less than the Creator of everyone and everything. Fighting to retain, to keep that focus and to then worship God in appropriate reverence is part of life in a fallen world for Christians. It's part of wrestling with our flesh, with the world, and with the devil. And as we come to Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon gives important instructions about our worship that address this issue. And he says in verse 1, if you look again, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, if you remember, Solomon was the man charged with building the temple in Jerusalem. David wanted to, but God said, no, that will be for your son. Solomon had it built. This is the house of God that he's referring to. He says, guard your steps. So for the old covenant people, the temple was the central place of worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It was God's holy sanctuary in the midst of His people. A footstool, if you will, for His throne. And by saying, guard your steps as you draw near, He's saying, He's admonishing to take care as you draw near to worship God. To be careful. We know that the saying, like, watch your step. Right? Be careful. Be on guard. Keep watch. He's warning against approaching the temple and approaching, therefore, God with a flippancy, with a casualness, even in ignorance or for some other bad reason. And so this opening line here in verse 1 is really the main point of this section that we read. And the rest of the verses, as we look through them, they're going to tell us how we should guard our steps, uh, why we should be guarding our steps, what this means. Obviously, we do not now worship at the Jerusalem temple. It has been made obsolete by the uh, death and resurrection of Christ. You remember the curtain was torn in two as Jesus was crucified. The temple itself, as Jesus prophesied, was destroyed in AD 70. But those who place their faith in Christ, we are indeed still worshipers of God. You remember Jesus saying that the time would come and is now here in which God seeks those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's not about whether you go to this mountain or that mountain or what the location is. It can be outside today. Here we are. We worship God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the mediation of the Son. We don't just worship when we gather here together. We worship throughout our week. We offer our very selves to God as a sacrifice, Romans 12.1. And so the admonition to guard your steps as you draw near is every bit as relevant now, today, for you and I. God is the same. He's not different. He hasn't suddenly thrown out any and all expectations of what it means to worship Him. And this text uh, is one that cuts through our external displays and takes aim at our hearts. It takes dead aim at the hypocrite that frankly resides to some extent in all of us. So our outline for today as we talk about guarding your steps as you come to worship, number one, guard your steps by being slow to speak and quick to listen. We'll see that in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, guard your steps by being careful what you vow or promise in verses 4 to 6. And thirdly, guard your steps by maintaining the fear of God. Guard your steps by fearing God. So number one, guard your steps by being slow to speak and quick to listen. The verse one again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So there's the main idea of this whole section. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. The main point here in this comment to draw near to listen is that we should not too quickly jump into or focus upon that which we are to do in worship, the sacrifices we offer. It is better, he says, to listen or to hear than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Listening or hearing implies coming with a desire to be instructed and to understand that instruction and respond appropriately. It acknowledges the need to be fed by God, to hear His Word, to be instructed by His Word as to who He is and to what He expects and what pleases Him. This, Solomon says, is better, here's that word again we looked at last week, is better than offering the sacrifice of fools. The fool here is one who would draw near to offer God a sacrifice, to perform an act of worship, but who lacks understanding. One who is not, therefore, guarding their steps. They're simply there to perform. They're there to act. They're there to do something, but they don't really have a knowledge and understanding. Many throughout the Old Testament thought that God was simply interested in their performance of sacrifices. If I just come and I just offer these animals on this altar and do these things prescribed, then that's all that's needed. As long as I do these things, perform these acts, God is happy, I'm good to go. And yet throughout the Old Testament, God continually condemned this sort of approach, this thinking, this type of worship. One of the well-known places where he does this, although it's throughout the Bible, but Amos 5. 
In Amos 5, he actually says that he hates their feasts and their offerings. The very feasts and offerings that he prescribed and told them to do, in Amos 5, he says he hates them. The reason being, they think that just because they offer some of these animals and keep some of these feasts in some way, that's all that God requires. And he points out, they have no understanding of true righteousness. There is no justice in this nation. Uh, Their leaders trample the poor and so on. And so God can bring himself to say he actually hates their feasts and offerings. This kind of approach to worship is not that different to how some today show up to church, perhaps give some money, maybe show up to church work days, whatever else, thinking that this activity in and of itself is what pleases God. Notice here that he calls the sacrifice of fools not just a bad idea, he calls it evil. They do not know they are doing evil, he says. And so that, that's a, an important word. To go ignorantly and to just start offering sacrifices not according to truth and knowledge, not in the right way God has prescribed. Evil, he says. Even if that person seemingly is well-intentioned even if they are a very nice person. Verse 2, he continues, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. As we will see, Solomon is concerned with specifically with rash vows that are being made to God. So in context, as he's saying here in verse 2, talking about rash and hasty words, certainly that would include making rash vows and promises and oaths to God or before God. But here I think he's first laying down this general principle that it can have a, a wide application. Uh, one of the applications has to do with vows, but it's a a, a wider principle to be careful we don't utter rash and hasty words when we come to worship God. So when we draw near to God to worship, we are to guard our steps by guarding our mouths, by not just opening them too quickly, uttering insincerity or meaninglessness. Our words clearly matter to God. And quickness to speak in his presence, quickness to make vows, these things that imply not carefully thinking it through or perhaps lacking in sincerity, this is not right. This is sin. The mark of a wise person in the Bible is careful and measured words. It's sincerity of speech and language. It is, as verse 3 says, the fool's voice that is accompanied by many words. Jesus himself, you remember, warned about heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do in our prayers, for they think they will be heard for their many words. That's Matthew 6, 7. We should not just open up our mouths without consideration of what we're about to say. If, if we're praying, what we're about to pray. 
or for singing what we are about to sing. This is partly why as we begin services, we typically read scripture and pray in order to hopefully focus ourselves. I realize we're busy, there's distractions, we're just, it's a win to just simply get out of the house and to be present here. I understand these things. And yet we are still to guard our mouths as we come in our hearts to prepare to worship God. Again, ideally, we like to stop and consider these things before we're three hymns into our service and we suddenly think, what am I singing even? What am I doing? I think we've all had that experience. One of the reasons given in the text for why speaking hastily is wrong is found in the middle of verse 2. He says, For God is in heaven and you are on earth. This is why we're not to be rash with our words. This is why they should be chosen carefully. Why they should be few even. The key is considering to whom it is that we are speaking and offering worship. It is to the God who resides in heaven. The being that is unlike anything else that we can lay our eyes on. You would not... I would think, go in mouth rattling if you were to meet earthly royalty or maybe some earthly person that, for whom you would love to meet and have high honor and regard for. It could be, I don't know, it could be a, a particular theologian you've appreciated. It could be a political figure, somebody else. If you suddenly found them yourself in their presence, you wouldn't just start rambling on and on, I don't think. If you did, you'd probably recognize later you were a fool in that moment. So the logic then is how much more is this to be the case when we address and worship the eternal creator, the one who has simply spoken everything into being, the eternal one who is from everlasting to everlasting, as Psalm 90 says. And so we dare not just spew whatever the next thing that jumps into our mind is or take a whatever-seems-right-to-me approach to worship. It is important to recognize something of the greatness of God as we worship and to recognize this before we start just offering things in worship. So when you draw near to worship, guard your steps by being slow to speak and offer and being quick to hear and to listen, to understand. It is all too common to make assumptions about God, to not ground our view of God and of worship in the scriptures. We are in need of revelation to know God truly and to know how we ought to approach him and to then approach him on his terms. And if we would be quick to listen, quick to hear, then we would see and understand in the Bible, first and foremost, that there is only one way that a person can offer acceptable worship to God, and that is through the mediation of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is due to God's holiness 
and man's sinfulness. We need Jesus to make us acceptable to God. And this is precisely what Jesus has come to do, to purchase forgiveness and to make sinners righteous and to so mediate between God and his people. If you think back to the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20, right away we have the gross violation of that law with the golden calf. And right away, it's very obvious there's a problem here as holy God enters into covenant with unholy Israel. And how is this going to work? How can this possibly uh, survive? How can they survive without being consumed by God's holiness? And then it goes into an explanation of the various offerings and the priestly system, all of which points to our need for mediation between us, common, sinful man, and God Almighty. And so Christ comes, and he is the great high priest. The book of Hebrews is all about this. He is the one who actually cleanses conscience of worshipers and makes us pleasing and acceptable to God, the one through whom we can come and offer worship that would actually please God. There is one way to the Father, as Jesus himself declared in John 14, 6. It's through him. So as we gather here, we come in the name of Christ and we draw near to hear. As you come, come to church to listen, to receive the word of God. To be edified in it, to hear the words of the songs, to receive and be renewed in the truths that are sung. Don't come simply focused on performing your act of worship. This is why some of our songs are almost purely recitations of doctrinal truths and biblical truths. Because as we worship, we are also needing to receive from God. And and as we saw in Colossians, exhort one another in the truths. As we sing, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Likewise, when you open your Bible to read it, uh, do not simply open it as your uh, duty that you are to perform this day. But as you are able, come to seek the Lord in His Word, to receive from Him, to learn of Him. Just one other point of application here as we consider our worship. We'll get to this later, since today we are taking the Lord's Supper. Again, it is often thought of as something simply we do. And indeed, we do perform it, if you will, as something we do in remembrance of Christ. But it is also something in which we are receiving, as we are being reminded of the Lord's death for believers for you until He comes. So you guard your steps by being slow to speak, being quick to listen. If you realize in a moment you should pray, you haven't prayed, obviously it is good to pray, but it is also wise to just take a moment and consider what you're about to do before you just start speaking. Being quick to listen, slow to speak. Secondly, guard your steps by being careful what you promise. 
Verses 4 to 6 are really an application of the principle we just looked at about guarding your tongue when worshiping. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. A vow is a solemn declaration and a promise. It is typically made in the presence of others, in the presence of God, to perform a particular task or duty. It's a promise to fulfill this, a pledge. We're probably most familiar with marriage vows today. In the context of this passage in the Bible more broadly, vows and oaths are connected often directly to worship. They are done consciously in the presence of God and typically invoke His name. Even if it's a vow governing human-to-human commitment, a vow that invokes God's name is tantamount to saying that if I do not perform what I vow, I am willing to suffer God's discipline or judgment for it, for my failure. And so this is no small matter. If we do not mean what we vow, then we are taking God's name vainly in that instance. Here's what Numbers 30 says, verses 1 and 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is saying a similar thing. Fulfill your vow you've made. Do not delay it. It is the fool who does not follow through on it. He continues in verse 5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin And do not say before the messenger that this was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hand? Whatever we would say, it is clearly not a small thing to make a vow. The messenger that's mentioned here in verse 6 is probably referring to a temple messenger, uh, someone who's sent to check on the progress of a, a vow that was made in the temple. This is telling us not to swear an oath in haste that you're just later going to try to get out of. You're going to try to dodge by saying, oh, I made a mistake. I just shouldn't have done that. I didn't really mean it. I didn't realize. I meant it at the time. I didn't really realize how hard it was, how hard it was going to be. Notice the vow that is made in haste, that is not kept, that's mistakenly made, is called sin here. It comes with a threat of anger and punishment from God. Again, this is not a light matter. Now, the reason that the whole concept of vows and oaths exists is because of man's untrustworthiness, because of man's tendency to lie, to be deceitful, untruthful. We are dishonest people, human beings. So when we invoke God's name and take a vow or an oath, we are inviting God to enter into it, to view it, to hold us accountable. We're inviting discipline upon us if we fail to live up to it. It's designed to assure others that we really do mean it. 
that we really plan to follow through of our true intentions by swearing before God Almighty that this is what we mean and what we will do. Should a vow or break their oath, those affected by it know, well, they've committed themselves to God's judgment if they violate what they've said they'll do, even if it's a secret to me. God himself has also sworn oaths in the Bible. In Psalm 132.11, we read that God swore to David a sure oath, namely that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. When God swears a sure oath, it is not because he is dishonest, but to show to us dishonest people how absolutely certain and serious he is when he swears, how absolutely certain it is that he will keep his word because we are untrustworthy and we live amongst untrustworthy people. We've been lied to. We have lied. We have a tendency, if God says something, we don't believe it. We're not certain it could be true that he would keep his word. And so as God swears an oath, he is accommodating himself to our own weakness and our own sinfulness. It is for our sake that he would swear an oath. Hebrews 6, 16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So his oath is to be even more persuasive to us. Of course, in Hebrews he's talking about the oath in Psalm 110.4 that David, or David's son, would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He guaranteed that with an oath. Think about it. All the years that passed between David and between, between the time of David and the time that it, the son of David, Jesus, came, how many opportunities there were for sinful man to think that God is perhaps like us and untrustworthy. He's not going to keep his promise. So even hundreds of years later, they were to look at this oath God swore, 2 Samuel 7, And know that God would keep his word. He can do no other. Of course, mankind has made a mockery of truth in general and of the concept of vows in particular. And Jesus addresses this in his woe in Matthew 23, verse 16. And we read that earlier. In Jesus' day, as he's walking the earth, a vow that was sworn by the temple could be broken. But if it was sworn by the gold within the temple, that's a vow that could not be broken. And Jesus, in those verses, is calling out their hypocrisy, exposing their error. Ultimately, they're playing fast and loose with truth and with intentions. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus also addressed oaths, saying there, don't even take them. Just make your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, if you're going to be so dishonest that you'll need oaths and vows for this and that and different types, some that can be broken and others that are truly binding, various levels of this, just stop it, is what he's getting at there in Matthew 6. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The design of a vow or an oath was never to make our regular conduct and speech untrustworthy. So I don't think Jesus was forbidding the use of oaths in every uh, circumstance when he says that. 
but he's condemning the practice as it was at the time. Again, elsewhere we see oaths and vows being taken in Scripture, including in the New Testament. Uh, In Acts 18, for example, Paul is under a vow there, a religious vow. Jesus' concern was honesty and sincerity in our speech. This has to be and is to be the norm for believers' life. We may not issue formal vows all that often today, but it's not uncommon to swear before God that we will do something for Him, to issue a promise before Him, often rashly. We make a promise about what we will or will not do. I will never blank again. This is a warning to not be a fool in your promises to God. Don't vow that you're never going to sin that sin again. In that moment where you realize you've sinned again and you're really upset with yourself and you just, out of hasty misunderstanding of your own heart, promise God you'll never do it again. There's other types of commitments that you might promise or make before God about your Bible reading, for example, or other such behaviors. But notice that such commitments should not be entered into lightly before the Lord. What is underneath all of this is the matter of honesty and sincerity. Don't promise or pledge yourself to something you have no plan of keeping or that you couldn't possibly keep. Don't utter careless words that you don't mean before God, especially before God, but also before your fellow man, too. Just briefly, on the issue of sinful vows, there are vows that are straight up sinful and wrong to make. We might wonder, what do we do? Are we bound to keep the sinful vow? Uh, And the answer is no. Uh, Think of Jephthah's tragic vow in Judges chapter 11, where he vows as an offering to the Lord to sacrifice whatever the first thing is out of his house. He's probably expecting to come across an animal, but it's his only daughter. And he follows through on it because he vowed. That's a sinful response. Such a vow ought to be broken, and the vow itself ought to be confessed to God as sinful. Even at the time of the Reformation, this was an issue. A lot of the priests, like Martin Luther, for example, Catholic priests, uh, they had made vows to be celibate their whole lives. And they realized that was unbiblical vow to make. It was not a necessary one. And this was an issue at the time. And so they confessed such a vow as being uh, spoken hastily and in itself sinful. And so they broke those vows of celibacy. It was one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church accused them of. This whole Protestant Reformation is because these men can't control themselves and just want to marry. I think that is the correct response. Jephthah, others who would vow something sinful ought not to keep that, but confess the vow itself as sin. So we be careful to deal honestly with God, guard our steps in this way as we worship, protecting the things, being careful of the things that we promise and vow to do, before God and before our fellow brothers and sisters. Thirdly, finally, 
guard your steps by maintaining a fear of God. This is really the issue. Verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. In the first half of the verse, we have a parable of the truth of which undergirds his previous comments about the folly of rash words. It's probably best to understand this reference to dreams as being metaphorical, referring to the person who has, as we might say, big dreams of what they're going to do. Specifically, then, this is a person who has big dreams of great accomplishments for the Lord, and they are mixed with many words, many empty words, and claims that ultimately just produce vanity. So really, then, it's saying that fools are the ones who seek to advance themselves before God with great promises and vows and words of the things that they are going to do and accomplish for God. And this is vanity, is what he's saying. This is not godliness. This is not how we advance in godliness before the Lord. So the key in all of this is given at the end, that God is the one you are to fear. Rather than being driven along by the fancy of your own imagination, coming to God with casualness and presumption, arising from your own thoughts, God says to come first, come near first to listen and to come with fear before Him. The reason why people come to God casually and with presumptions arising from their own minds about what God will approve of, the reason that a man can rattle on in ignorance about what he's going to do for God and then just take it all back later, the reason we deal with God in less than honest ways is that we do not have a fear of the Lord. It's missing. It's lacking. The fear of the Lord is a cure to casualness with God. If there is some reverence for the majesty of the eternal God who is not bound and limited as we are, the God who is the king and sovereign over all, the God who is is perfect love and justice and righteousness, the God who knows all, and is light, and in whom there is no darkness, the God who does not change while everything else does change, the God who is not, does not learn anything new, he's not bound by time, the God who does not need permission from you or from anyone to do anything. If there's some grasp of this being and, and fear and reverence before him, then there will be a great reluctance to come before him with dishonesty, with careless and quick words, and with empty promises. The fear of God. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is a reverence before God arising from some grasp of his holiness, and of your own lowliness, finiteness, even apart from your sin. Add to that your sinfulness as well. This is what Solomon was getting at in verse 2 when he says not to be rash with your words or let your heart hasty and utter word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Remember who he is. 
It's the same idea, fearing God. For the sinner, if you have never really dealt honestly with God about your own sin, have perhaps spent your days coming rather presumptuously before God, or have been in your sin and have not confessed that to the Lord, have not sought refuge in Christ, have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's greatness and purity, His majesty ought to strike terror, not just a reverence, but a terror into your heart. On account of your sinfulness and the reality that God is indeed a consuming fire. That's something we don't like, maybe, to hear, but it's undeniably so in Scripture. Because He is holiness, He is obligated to deal harshly with sin and with sinners. To judge it. His all-seeing gaze, moreover, will not allow one violation of His moral law to go unpunished. Judgment will be just and it will be exact and perfect. Nobody will escape. And so the thought of judgment ought to terrify you. And it ought to cause you to deal honestly with God, to stop any charade, to confess your sins before God, to agree with what Scripture says about your condition, your sin. And to acknowledge them before him in self-abasement. Not just a casual, well, sure, not perfect, you got me. That's not fear of God. And if you would come near to listen to his word, you would learn that you cannot overcome your sin or make up for past sins that you've committed. You can't just do whatever might seem good to you to overcome sin. There is one remedy for sin. There is one remedy alone, and it is the Lamb that God Himself has provided, the very Son of God who took to Himself a human nature. As the Word of God, Jesus became flesh, became man, and went on to offer His own perfect self on behalf of sinners, to rise again from the dead, that all who do confess their sins to God place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, might not perish under God's holy and awful wrath, but would instead be forgiven, be pardoned, be reconciled to the holy God against whom you have sinned. To be justified in right standing with God, to be welcomed home, be part of the body of Christ, eternally, forever, belonging to the Lord. If you would worship God rightly, guard your steps. If you would listen to Him, to His Word, then you would know that the only acceptable worship can go to God through Jesus Christ. This is what it is to to pray in His name, to worship in Christ's name. We come not on our own merits to God and to His throne, and to worship, to pray, to ask for mercy and help, but on the merits of Christ. You cannot come directly to God because of your sins. This is clear throughout Scripture. Your first need is reconciliation to God. 
And this comes through faith in the Son of God. And Psalm 130 verse 4 reminds us, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be feared. The one resting in Christ and trusting in Him, in His work, that His work is sufficient to save and to bring you to God, such a one fears God, reverences Him rightly. We are forgiven that we may fear God. But of course, we know that even so, as Christians, we do not always fear God properly, do we? We still open our mouths too soon, whether in prayer or in song or in promise. We can still be all too often guilty of being casual with God. And so I would just encourage you to take a moment to just confess that to you. And to see that this is yet another reason why you need Christ and His mediation for you. And hear again these words to guard your steps, to fear God, to watch your tongue, to prepare yourself prior to even coming to church to worship, to give a thought prior to opening your mouth to pray, even if that's at the supper table. And as you come to church, as you come to the Word of God in whatever setting, Come and receive from the Lord rather than looking to simply perform a duty or rattle off words to Him. Again, this side of eternity, our worship will not be perfect. This is why we rest in Christ. And yet even so, we still want to heed these words here to guard our steps when we go to the house of God, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now acknowledging your majesty your holiness, your greatness, and our unworthiness. And we praise you that though we be horrifically unworthy to worship you, you have made a way for us to do just that through your son, Jesus. We praise you and thank you for his sacrifice that atones for our sins for the reconciliation that he has brought between us and you. Father, I pray that we would grow in our reverence for you and our fear of you. That we would know and understand that Christ truly does make us acceptable to you. And that we would not live in 
terror of you all our days, but we would have a, a fear that is a, an awe and a respect and a, a humility before you. Father, I pray that you grow this in us further. And we praise you for where it does evidence itself because we know that you have ultimately worked that in us as we would not fear you apart from your gracious work in us. Father, I pray that you would just make us a reverent people before you. That you would help us to remember your greatness throughout our days and to come to your word to find reminder. We, we know we struggle to guard our steps. We are often flippant and a little too casual. We confess that as sin. We thank you that Jesus has died for that sin. And we pray that you would continue to do your good work of forming Christ in us. So we, we praise you only in and through the name of Jesus as he is the only way that our prayers could be carried to you, that we could have any reason to approach your throne of grace. So we pray all of this together in Jesus' name. Amen.